Hello and welcome to another episode of the Atlas Podcast. My name is Alex. I'm joined as always by Martin. Hello, Martin. Hello, Alex. How are you doing today? I'm fine. I thought I'd go for a slightly different hello, Alex, today. I don't know if you it's noticed. Good. It was punchy. I liked it, was, it a lot. It was punchy, yeah. I didn't slide into it like I did before. I just went straight in there. It was very upstanding, hello, Alex. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Funny, I'm sat down. But anyway. Well, there we go. <laughs> um, okay, so today we're going to be talking about SMRs, small modular reactors. Uh, we are also going to have a chat with Usman Hack. And following on from that, we're going to talk a little bit about smart cities. Uh, yes. So yeah. yeah, we're revisiting the SMR because there's been some press releases uh, this week um, around it. So I um, thought it was worth catching up with the status of it. Yeah, it's something we have discussed before. Um, and yeah, it seems to be progressing well. I'm all, all for nuclear power. So any news on that, I'm happy to see. Yes, it's just another part of that um, mixture of everything we need in the future, isn't it? We need a bit of everything. We need that base load. We need the, you know, we need to make the hydroelectric more effective um, uh, as an energy storage system as well. Um, yeah, lots of different ways of generating electricity and a change to the way that the grid actually operates as well, which is probably slightly hidden beneath all of this and. Um, as a part of that smart meter rollout, which I'm sure everybody's getting slightly nagged with. Um, yeah, but that's just a yeah, little bit. Which, yeah. which actually links into the whole smart city story. So quite interconnected. Good stuff. So, yeah, what's been happening in the SMR world? Well, yeah, there's a press release from Rolls Royce. Um, it was also in the Financial Times, including many other. Um, uh, outlets there so it kind of gives you a, a level of significance when the FT release something about um, what's happening with the SMR program and um, so I think the main thing here there's a few things apart from um, it's obviously progressing which is great but there's um you know some major changes really to the design and the output of the SMR from the original releases discussing it and the, the, the main difference here is that going from 440 megawatts to 470 megawatts, mm. which um, may not seem a lot, but when you're rolling out a number of these um, uh, SMRs around the UK, then that all adds up to a, a significant amount of additional power um, and is all tied into that zero carbon type of efforts, really. So, mm. um, yeah, an extra whatever that is, um, seven. Extra 30 megawatts. Yeah, yeah, yeah of, of power. Um, does require a level of you know redesign, not just from the fact the aesthetics of the design, uh, but also actually the major engineering components that go within it. So I think one thing's I think well there's some other interesting things that have been released as a part of the the discussion about the um, operating lifetime is 60 years, which is a considerable bit of time really and that's what it's designed to operate to and a lot of the these um stations operate for longer than that just more mm. hours necessity because there's no necessary energy strategy in place but um i think that will change in the future we need more yeah. of a continual way of uh, optimizing these things and obviously there's a levels of things like radiation there is a level of uh, maintenance required with these things um uh, yeah, as well. but is, there, is the fixed lifespan 
um, something to do with the sort of, I guess, the efficacy of them because they're smaller. They're not big monolithic units. They, I guess you want them for a certain amount of time and then you can build more as needed. I guess there's going to be emitters or hyperbole, but I guess there's a, a level of technology advancement as a part of that. There's also the viability of operating anything. Um, so when we build buildings these days, they, they, they're, you know, we're still obsessed with bricks and mortar, but how long do those buildings last for? Mm. Um, isn't that long really, unless you're gonna. So yeah, everything has a particular lifespan of which makes it sensible to run it for. Um, and uh, that goes with anything really. So even coal power stations or uh, they all had a particular lifespan and often they were running well beyond their lifespan. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I think it's more to do with what's what's considered reasonable within the industry and taking into effect multiple factors uh, around that. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, 60, 60 <laughs> years is a long time. Or is it 50 or 60 years? Yeah. Um, and like you say, the advancements we'll make in 60 years, uh, you just can't really calculate it, can you? So obviously by the end of that lifespan, presumably there will be another model for producing energy or like you say, we may have caught up with, because that's the other thing with nuclear power, it's fantastic as an interim to get us into a fully renewable carbon zero world. Mm. But you do obviously want to move away from it because even though it's far less impactful, on the environment and a lot safer uh, environmentally it's still only it's still nuclear power yeah i mean there's a i guess there's quite a lot of debate around that ultimately isn't there i mean um some of the things we discussed last time is these new reactors can actually burn the old fuel as well so they can and you can reprocess um you know the uranium that goes into them as well so <clears throat> in a weird way they're all they are sustainable within themselves um, yeah. because you don't burn a lot of the actual potential energy from the uranium each time that you um, um, use it so yeah there's lots of other things that be considered as a part of this and when you look about this overall design you know power station um, <clears throat> design has been made to the, the new design has been made to cut cost um, and using standard nuclear technology that's going to be used around 400 reactors around the world. Mm. So I'm sure that, that you know, so some people are like, school scary, 400 reactors, but it's all about, yeah, you know, and one of the big bugbears I've had on the, on the whole green energy situation is the fact that you're tying two things together when people talk about nuclear, they're talking about the, the, the destructive nature of nuclear bombs, if you like, and the the potential um, power source. Um, and who knows, you know, 60 years, we've been saying this for a while, maybe fusion might be there around them. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a quote from that Bill Gates book we read is, we've been about 15 years away from nuclear fusion for the last 100 years. Basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so who knows? And the other interesting things here, apart from the fact that, you know, it's now using more standardized technology, if you like, um, around the two lines of these other programs around the world, but it's also looking at memorandum of understanding across, um, across Europe with various businesses. So there's obviously a scales of economy working here where 
a lot of the original uh, nuclear were built on completely different nuclear technologies. And, mm. and a lot of them were prototypes that went on to run as power generators in their own right. I mean, I worked at a um, power station called yeah, Winfrith that was only ever built as a, as, a, as a prototype power generation station. And they went on for many years. Mm. <laughs> um, and it would just use different technology. Uh, which so yeah to call one thing a nuclear power station is very misleading because of the the uh, advances in the technology over the time um, as well um, yeah and, and so yeah so really interesting approaches um to that and the the ultimate thing there they're getting more power out of the system but the uh, price has dropped from 2.2 billion um to 1.8 billion per unit so that's a significant um drop in cost as well hopefully that is and it's yeah. it speaks to that yeah increased levels of efficiency um that you get with these small modular reactors well it's all about economics again it's all about the scale and economics and you go the more cookie cutter approach we can take to these type of things the cheaper they become um, and you, you've really got to have that level of maturity in the design from the front because, or from the start, because you don't want to be changing your requirements um, when you're trying to take a more streamlined manufacturing approach to it. Because as soon as you do, you go from a, you know, off the shelf, off the peg shirt to a custom shirt, and then the prices just escalate. True. True. And they are, yeah, they will be exporting this as well, hey? Um, I know there's a few companies signed up, or countries signed up, uh, Estonia, Turkey, Czech Republic, all uh, keen on getting their own, um, yeah, small modular reactors. Yeah, as yeah, we discussed before, there's in Canada and America, you know, that's where this kind of 400 potentially across the globe, globe is, so some great advances there. Incredible. Looking forward to more, uh, more news on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the time being, let's jump into our chat with Usman. And so, for this interview portion of the Atlas podcast, we are joined by Usman Huck of... Oh, I had it written here. Uh, yeah, so founding partner, creative director of Umbrellium and the CEO of Thingful.net, amongst many other things. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Usman. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to chat. Good stuff. Yeah. So if you'd like to perhaps give a little of your background, uh, how you got into the wonderful world of technology. Sure. Well, I, I, I was actually trained as an architect and, uh, you know, I'd like to think that everything I'm working on really still pertains to the practice of architecture, which is really mm -hmm. the experience of, uh, of space and how we relate to each other in our environments. And, um, from the very start, I suppose I was always interested in interactive environments, you know, the kind of spaces that people can, can configure and, and make their own, which in one sense we've always done. Um, but I was particularly interested in what I saw as this kind of transition from, from kind of buildings and cities being designed specifically uh, by, you know, a small group of experts to the idea of being able to kind of configure and reconfigure your own space and even your own structures to a certain extent. Um, and so uh, about sort of 15 years ago or so, 
Um, I, it was it was actually as a result of having a number of different projects in different cities around the world at the same time. Uh, I built a kind of a very simple system, at least for me at the time, simple system for kind of monitoring the sensors and actuators in all of these kind of interactive environments at the same time, uh, and uh, realized I could start to connect up these different projects, um, and eventually discovered that other people wanted the same kind of thing, and it turned out to be something that could contribute to what became known as the Internet of Things. and sort of in the very early days, uh, uh, I created a platform called Patch Bay, which was kind of an open IoT platform. And that has kind of led to uh, then eventually de um, developing Thingful.net, which is a search engine for IoT, and Umbrellium, which is really bringing all of my practice and uh, experience back into, into one place, which is um, design, uh, cities, technology, and basically being able to do the kind of projects that really uh, involve people in their in the kind of in their the design and creation of uh, of uh, uh, urban space. And, and so that's an interesting point. Now we don't think we spoke to an architect yet, because normally when we talk about architects, we're talking about IT architects. Um, you're talking about, if you like, proper architects <laughs> in that kind of sense. That's right. But yeah. And so that that world, what 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 led you into architecture, the physical form of that in the first place, is because that's got a, a very creative element to it, or can have a creative element to it as well, doesn't it? Well, it's funny because I um. Uh, you know, when I was uh, doing my O levels and A levels, I was, uh, you know, as of, of course, very interested in art and very interested in science and a kind of a combination of the two. And I remember, um, uh, you know, my teachers suggesting that I should go into architecture, uh, and I really had no interest whatsoever in buildings. You know, mm. I would look at these kind of static forms and think that's really not that interesting to me. Um, and in fact, in my mind, I was I was planning to uh, to study physics, um, which I, which I found a, a lot more gripping. And then I read a book of short stories by Nadine Gordimer, uh, the South African author. Um, and there was something about this book and its description of architecture and architects that really pulled me. And I, I kind of I mean, it sounds a bit kind of. Um, uh, 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 mystical to say it, but I just felt this kind of pull towards architecture, and I actually just changed my um, changed my application uh, to go to apply for architecture in t instead of physics. Um, <laughs> somehow got in on the portfolio that I presented, and um, promptly struggled <laughs> for a couple of Fantastic. years. Um, uh, but I think what 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 that struggle kind of gave me was this kind of desire to really understand what it was about architecture that I that actually did pull me and it really was about the experiential side rather than the kind of built form static structure side which I think uh, traditionally we've come to think of as architecture yeah and one of my favorite okay I guess it's um architect critics is Jonathan Meads. I know he's uh, he's been done lots of TV programs. And to me, that's what he taps into a lot. He taps into the experience of being a human within spaces. And, you know, it's not about just the form, it's the function, it's the it's the feel, it's the emotion of the whole thing, really. Um, and, yeah. yeah. And that, that play between all of those elements, I think, is why 
architecture is such a creative subject. I think in some regards in the IT world, it's not quite in that space, but maybe you can persuade me that there is that kind of synergy between what you do with the IoT world and and uh, the artistic forms or the emotional forms that you see within the the, the realm of yeah society buildings structure. How, do you see a parallel between those two things? Uh, yeah, I mean, in in all sorts of ways. I suppose that that what I was originally thinking of, I used to kind of describe as the software of space rather than the hardware. So I was kind mm. of doing projects and designs that were all about the sound, the light, the smell, the temperature, the the social relationships, you know, even in some cases electromagnetic fields mm. inside a space. Um, and that kind of paralleled the kind of interest in how do people inside those spaces both experience them as well as how do they affect them how can they kind of intentionally affect all of these things um and and so uh, a lot of my kind of early work was actually really looking closely at cybernetics and second order cybernetics and feedback systems and systems of observers and and so on and so forth and i think that almost directly kind of corresponds to the idea well first of software in terms of, uh, in a technical sense, in terms of interaction and feedback and control and so on and so forth. Um, and, and that's kind of why, although I've gone back and forth between those two aspects of it, for me, it is all really the, the practice of architecture ultimately. In a sense, the discipline that I would like to one day have some kind of effect on is, uh, is architecture. Mm. Do you like mm -hmm. to loop back around there, hey? Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. I, I was, I mean, I've been looking through uh, the projects you've done with Umbrella, and they are incredibly varied. I was wondering, is it, are they, you have an idea and that you go out and you find partners, or is it more collaborative that people come to you with spaces and ideas? Uh, how does it generally, how does an Umbrella project get started? It is a little bit of both. Um, what we don't do is, and, and which is why, you know, we don't necessarily kind of uh, act as uh, as this. You know, we're, we're not really the kind of design studio where uh, there will be a client and they'll have a problem and they'll be looking for a solution. You know, I think mm. that's not necessarily where where I think I, I perform best. I think where, where, where the best work that we do is where somebody... So, might even say we're not even sure what the problem is, uh, but we think there's an opportunity to work in this context or this area or with this community or with this set of issues or something like that. Um, and sometimes there'll be something that we have already been thinking about, or you know, there's been something uh, we've already been working on. Uh, and an example of this is is a lot of our air quality work is actually entirely self-initiated because. Um, having done a lot of air quality projects now over the last 10, 12 years, um, we kind of we basically started again five years ago, saying, "Okay, let's go back to basics and try and try and figure out how to tackle air quality um, from from the kind of nuts and bolts end." Um, and then we we'd kind of find the the suitable um, uh, context in which to do that kind of project. Um, but other projects are, uh, and an example of this might be VoiceOver, where, which initiated in East Durham, where 
literally we just were, were asked to to work with um, a community in, in East Durham. Um, and we had a pretty open-ended brief, but we knew that we wanted to have something after, uh, I think the I think we had about two or three years or something like that uh, at, at the beginning of the project to kind of develop it. And the project entirely came out of working with them, conversations, experiments with them, prototypes and kind of, um, uh, kind of small performances building up to to the final thing, which was a kind of a, a social, uh, hyper-local social radio, if you like. Fascinating. <laughs> so yeah. Some really interesting things there to be involved with as well. And where, where do you get those? There's quite a lot you're involved with there. Austin. And some of them, you've got lots of different you know, businesses that you come up with. As a part of creating those things, what are the what are those um, things you find most difficult? Is it coming up with the name, the concept, or what? What kind of yeah? What what are the difficult things you find when you start to get these businesses or these ideas? Are there, is there a single thing you always struggle with, or is there something that all just flows from there? I think the most difficult thing is actually understanding from a commissioner's perspective or the client or or you know whatever organization that happens to to be really getting to to grips with and understanding what their perception of value is in other words if we're going to do something how do we make sure we're doing something that they see as valuable because first of all sometimes they may not be able to articulate it that well um, sometimes they might think it's one thing, but it turns out that actually when you talk to the team members who are doing the kind of, you know, who are actually impacted on the ground, it's something completely different. Um, sometimes there might be a, a, a kind of an, a, an impact assessment where um, whoever's basically paying for the project has different metrics from the community we might be involved with, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, and so, you know, in, in a sense, I think that is the difficult thing because the other, the, the other aspect of, of I, th I think, of, of, of what we're working on is that, in a sense, it's not really art, but often it might have the perception of being something that is an artwork, if you see what I mean. And mm. if we presented it as purely an artwork, you know, in some senses, it might be a lot easier to get funded because because there are very different um, um, assessments of, of that kind of thing. And mm. it, there might be a lot more competition for it. And uh, there might be a lot more variety for, for for what might be driving it. But but in a sense, it would be a lot easier to explain, oh, it's just an art project. And the fact that what we're trying to do really, to my mind, is about impacting the infrastructures that drive urban space, how we use it, how we relate to each other, and that ultimately, from my perspective, I think are a required transformation in cities in the 21st century, means that we, we you know, I kind of set myself a very high bar, if you see what I mean, in terms of demonstrating that this thing is important and necessary and has impact and can be assessed in this way and so on and so forth. Does that make sense? For sure, yeah. So would you say that's really your driving philosophy behind, I mean, Umbrellium specifically is that end goal of making cities better? 
Yeah, I'd like to. I'd I'd like to say that. I mean, I I, I talk about engaging cities because I don't mm. necessarily know what better is. Mm. Yeah. But what I do think is that engaging cities, in other words, ones where people are engaged, where they're interested, where they are involved, where they're kind of to a certain extent, you know, actually care about something. That phenomenon seems to me to be a necessarily better situation. Um, from one where we just feel disenfranchised, or where one one where we feel like somebody else is making the decision, so it really doesn't matter what we're doing, um, uh, and and so I think yeah, that that's kind of my goal. Um, and I think that's really interesting from a point of view. Of cities are going to change. We assume they're going to change quite dramatically. A lot of cities have published their kind of future um, ideas about carbon-free or vehicle-free centers and things like that and you kind of live in cities and you think how much is this going to change and how much is there going to you know that change going to be accepted by those who live within it um is that something that you think of yourself about the impact of zero carbon on cities and what that really will mean to the population within them yeah so there's actually lots of things that to unpack from all that, which which I think it is where it really gets interesting. Um, you know, first of all, I think when we start thinking about the future, particularly in the context of technology, all too often I think there is this this kind of projection of inevitability. You know, often people will talk about um, technology and say, "Oh, you know, people will be able to do this. They'll do this. They'll have this. They'll feel like this. They'll, you know, this kind of technology will be able to do this." as if that is a certainty. Mm. Um, uh, and if there's anything I've no noticed from sort of 25 years of working in technology is that you can almost never predict actually what the technology is going to do, how it's going to be received, or even what it's going to be repurposed, uh, you know, and uh, 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 new both good and sort of slightly worrying things might, might come out of it. Um, so, so I think one aspect is that I try to take away, in, at least in my mind, the inevitability that technology will be able to do something or that we will do something. And instead, you know, I think what's interesting to me is to say, um, and particularly when, when working with, with other groups of people or working with communities, is actually to say, what future do we actually want? You know, not this future that's going to be inevitable and how are we going to feel about it when it's here, but what do we actually want? And more importantly, because what usually arises is that people want slightly different futures. How mm. do we encompass a methodology that accounts for this kind of differing vision of the future? Now, there's all of that, but then there is also the fact that, yeah, I think we are in a climate emergency and um, we are necessarily going to, in one way or another, dramatically change the way we exist with each other uh, and with, uh, with, with, um, with our cities and even with our natural systems, which is a, a whole separate thing. Mm. Um, and that change is either going to be driven because the environment just pushes back at us, or it can be changed because we intentionally take steps to, to, to kind of, uh, you know, change the way we live. Either way, that, that kind of uh, effect is coming. And so, you know, kind of referring to what I said a, a moment ago, 
I would like to find ways that we intentionally and deliberately and deliberatively, if you see what I mean, make decisions about how we're going to, uh, to make those changes. Because mm. um, if it is imposed, then one thing we've seen is that, you know, if it's, if it's imposed uh, in a top-down kind of process, one thing, you know, I think we've seen two things. One is that people don't necessarily like it. And, and two is that quite often it's wrong. Mm. Yeah, if you're forced into a path, yeah, it's there's always going to be pushback, and I think you're right. I, by hook or by crook, there's going to be change at some point. It'd be much better that we're leading that and making the decisions rather than reacting to the change that's sort of put upon us. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but I see lots of these city futures being presented, and you know, um, and all these big cities are trying to present a future. I guess that's difficult, though, to engage with the population, isn't it? To say, here, here's our vision of the future. Is that also your vision of the future in a disenfranchised way? Um, yeah. I think that's that's the tricky bit because I've seen some very basic things. I'm sure we all have changes in cities during COVID, um, you know, from one-way streets or what were two-way streets converted to one-way streets to prevent traffic flow or this type of thing. Um, and people suddenly get quite irate about the fact that, oh, I can't drive down this street the same way as I used to before. And I'm yeah. kind of looking at it going, well, that's a perfect there, a cycle superhighway through the city or something like this. And, yeah. and, you know, it's those kind of things I'm thinking, are they being positioned and, you know, gently put in place? But, we, you know, we've only got up until 2030, really, to make these major changes. And... That's a lot of change in my mind that's going to happen in cities in a very short period of time. And if it doesn't, um, maybe we won't achieve some of those um, targets we need to achieve. That's um, right. That's right. And I think that also there's, there's an, another thing at play as well in terms of getting people involved, which is, from my perspective, it's a purely pragmatic thing, which is that I've noticed that when you get people involved in something directly, um, uh, that sense of agency and almost like ownership of the problem mm. or ownership of what you're doing means they become that much more invested in the outcome. Mm. It doesn't necessarily mean there's absolutely going to be a better outcome because I don't believe necessarily that, that this kind of idea of crowdsourcing creates the best possible solution. But what I do see is that when people are involved like that and there is this kind of crowd dynamic to it, that sense of, of kind of responsibility for the outcome means that whatever comes out of it, people at least understand that it was a lot more complex than just, you know, some bureaucrat having made the wrong choice, if you see what I mean. And so that sense of kind of um, optimism, I think, gives something more inertia to go that next step to try and, you know, to, 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 whether that's to wider scale or whether that's to kind of solving whatever problems arise or what have you. Whereas, again, just from a pragmatic perspective, when people are kept out of it, you know, when failures start to emerge, when, you know, people start to look at a, the budget that a local authority has spent on some, you know, smart system that doesn't quite work, there's such a, there's such pushback on that, that really it just, it just kind of, it, it falls on its face, as it were. Yeah, um, and it's it feels it's sort of when those things happen, it's at step one as well. But if somebody has yeah. a certain level of buy-in, they're more willing to iron out the kinks or stick with it until it can become something. But yeah, you're right. If it's 
okay, we made the decision. This is what we do now. Oh, it doesn't quite work. It's straight in the bin. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Some really interesting points there. Thanks I mean, so much, as always, to unpack with these uh, type of interviews, I think, Alex. But um, I think we're coming towards the end. But um, is there any, what, what's next for you coming up? What, what really exciting thing have you got to, if you like, leave us with? Um, leave us wanting more, I guess, is the phrase there, Osman. Well, so this, this basically, th this last year has really, you know, given me as well as I think pretty much everyone pause for thought on, on, you know, what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And one of the things that's come out of this is that I, that I've, I decided I wanted to work really on, on one main large project um, rather than lots of different ones, you know, as we had been doing. Um, and so the big project for me at the moment is uh, a, a, a kind of an urban rewilding scheme, which is really about reconnecting people, nature, and cities, and kind of developing ways for us all to live and learn from each other, if you see what I mean. Mm. Um, so that involves both the kind of rewilding of the city in terms of you know, green infrastructure and so on and so forth, but also how we live and work and um, and kind of interact with each other in the city and with our kind of non-human companions, birds, insects, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and that is, if you like, it's both a kind of design project as well as a technology project, as well as a kind of a, a, a project that touches on economics and social systems and so on and so forth. Um, we're hoping to touch down in, in London in the in the next year or so. Fantastic. I mean, I think we could do a whole episode just on that project. So we'll have to get you out. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like we circle back all the way uh, to talk about architecture and urban spaces, which I think is fantastic. Good stuff. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, yeah, we'd love to have you back in the future. Great. Thank you for having me. Nice to chat. And so for this tech spot in the Atlas podcast, uh, we are going to continue talking off the back of our interview there about smart cities, the implementation, the tech behind them, and yeah, all that sort of thing. Well, I think we've been a bit nerdy in the last few weeks, so I thought I'd bring it up a little bit of a level and more about the application of technology, not necessarily diving deep into the technologies itself slightly um, less acronyms this week yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would help wouldn't it we've been acronym heavy um, so uh, smart cities is could be considered a kind of utopian ideal and i think um at some level there's always going to be a, a, an element of that um but and I think in, in, in the interview we had there, it was interesting to see that, that blend of architecture and technology and space and humanity and nature mm. and all those aspects of it. And as we discussed before, many cities have got um, at least zero carbon targets um, uh, that, that need to be met. And really, you know, where does technology fit in this city of the future or even you know, some of the urban, sorry, some of the... Um, non-urban spaces as well. But anyway, so what do we need and what's the difference between the cities we have today and what does a smart city mean? Because we seem to see everything from smart motorways to smart meters and et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, it's but... one of those words that gets thrown out a lot, I think. The smart yeah. X. Yes. And I don't think we can ever get smart until we talk about systems of systems. And we'll come on to that a little bit because the technology itself is really around three main elements. It's, it's going to be driven by sensors, mm -hmm. uh, how those sensors network, and how we engage with that technology. Um, and those three elements, I think, is is really going to be the key. Uh, and when we talk about sensors, I mean, we have lots of sensors today, especially in the manufacturing world. There's, you can have hundreds of thousands of sensors in any factory. And, mm. But they're predominantly there to um, drive the automation of the machine itself. And we've done some deep dives into those kind of technologies uh, recently as well. But when you talk about at a city level, what are we talking about? You know, it's, it's a, you've got to sense something, but potentially you've got to change something. You've got to have that closed loop uh, aspect to it. <clears throat> and does that closed loop come through um, actuation of other things or engagement with us as a society? Um, and it's really about trying to provide real time urban information um, with low cloud sensors, wireless networking, still we've got the web, you know, will the mm -hmm. web survive? Or will, is there another thing that's going to take over the web? Doesn't look like it, but you know, it's a, it's a way of sharing information. And obviously the mobile smart applications have arrived. So what we talked about a little bit with kind of open data, and we talked a lot about that is if you have the, if you have your cities sensorized, um, and then you can then have that data in a, a format that the app developers then can use and utilize. That's why a lot of people talk about data as a kind of commodity, really, mm. um, because the value itself is not in the data. Um, it's in what you do with the data and how you improve the, the city around us with it. So you could consider there's maybe five or six different main categories of measurement. Um, we've talked about the environmental aspect because obviously the amount of pollution at a city level uh, has become very hot topic um, and lots of assessments being done on the impact on people's lives and uh, livelihoods because of the amount of uh, low level pollutions. And high level, uh, yeah, and it's, I think, especially over the last year with COVID, we saw some in incredibly impactful photos of the sort of smog and pollution that certain cities built up when there wasn't cars driving around for a few days, a few weeks. You realize quite how much, uh, how much pollution certain, well, yeah, industrial cities can build. Yeah, and the impact on wildlife, the the water runoff, you know, flooding and how we manage water. Um, there's, there's a whole load of things that we could be, you know, looking at or at least sensing the world around us to see what the impact of that is, uh, really. Um, then we've got safety as well. So we've also seen some uh, quite disasters recently with, with bridge failures and uh, mm -hmm. alike. Uh, and 
there's there's ways of sensing the strains of buildings and things so you get a a better feel for bridges and dams and things like that and have advanced warning in place so we can maintain things better or even you know with natural disasters how do we manage that so we've got to consider that <clears throat> the main point people mostly think of is really that kind of transportation um the way that the the city the future future going to operate um it's going to be quite difficult to know uh, when we start to bring in these technologies like self-drive vehicles, electrification, how how that's going to change. Um, will it be as big a change from going from the canal-driven systems of the first industrial revolution um, to the automotive industry? Who knows? But it could be something as radical as that. Um, there was news today that, that uh, the electric car is going to be introduced far quicker than people realize. And when you look at that, and some of the targets around an electric car, you know, 2035, something like this, like we talked about the boilers. Well, suddenly, you know, if you're buying a, a, a petrol car today, they've probably only got a lifespan of eight years before they may well not be the king thing on the road. Um, yeah. Therefore, you know, you're investing a lot of money potentially in a, in a, in a car that isn't going to have that much or have zero value ultimately. If, yeah, I think we're certainly getting to the tipping point where people will look at that and go, well, how long am I actually going to have this for? Maybe I'll just tip up a bit more now and then be ready for whenever that happens. Because, yeah, it's as with everything, it's phased, isn't it? So stop production of petrol cars, then stop the selling of new petrol cars, <laughs> and then eventually somewhere down the line, stop petrol cars altogether mm. but i think um, i don't think the economics is going to be linear i think it's going to be you've said a tipping point i think that suddenly people are going why am i spending fifty thousand on a on a petrol car that isn't going mm -hmm. to be worth anything in five years well, that's a bigger decision there isn't it um it is and they go nice and quick now as well <laughs> so the, i think even the petrol heads are quite happy that you can switch over to, I mean, the Teslas are insanely fast. <laughs> so yeah, they've got something um, for everyone now. And utilities. So utilities, we talk about the energy consumption, but once again, it looks like electricity as a technology is going to be around for a lot longer than things like gas. Yeah. Um, and therefore how the grid manages and shares um, energy effectively, including water as well, because water is a, uh, a resource or a commodity that's required. Um, so yeah, so those two things and how we identify leaks in a more far more effective way, especially in the UK, we have seem to have a lot of water around. Therefore, um, so, so we seem to not concentrate so much on the, the leakage of the system. Um, mm. um, and we have quite an old system. So yeah, the amount of investment and where to focus that investment in is going to be key but in hot countries <clears throat> probably even more vital um there's uh you know lots of measures um i spent some time in malta and they've got um you know they have to have particular systems to reverse osmosis to extract water out of the sea and all these types of things so yeah the, the way water's managed and the technology and how that's uh, is done and then buildings themselves um about how how advanced those buildings will become 
Um, we do already see a certain amount of technology with this kind of nest and those smart type of uh, thermostats and all kinds of little bits and pieces that are coming into the house. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so all of this stuff really falls under the definition of what we call the Internet of Things, really, um, because really what the Internet of Things is all about is being able to have sensors, connect those sensors up by the millions onto a network and then make that data available mm. um, as a commodity, if you like, of which then you can create a, a, a set of apps that can start solving these problems. And the reason why that's important is because really difficult for one person or one business to look at all of that data and work out what the best thing to do with that is. Mm. Um, and that's why the things like open data is so key is because if you can have it as a commodity in the same way as water or as electricity, then you can create more value from that data because more people can work with it to look at that, the problems, the specific problems they're looking to solve. Mm. And, and that requires a small army of, of people interested in this thing to be able to um, utilize the data. And we've, we've spoke to a few people that are very keen on got particular use cases that they're looking to solve with the data, but it, we're only just at the infancy of that because we don't have the necessary data um, or the data in the right format that we can utilize and solve problems with. Yeah. Yeah. And we have, we, I mean, we chatted with Gavin Starks, who is very keen on open data from a, a zero carbon future mindset and also Lucy Knight a couple of weeks ago, um, very keen on open data. And it is, yeah, you're right. If, if we're going to be looking to achieve the kind of things we can achieve with fully integrated cities, which really could minimize <clears throat> waste and carbon production, you do need to have that model of data. Again, it's not necessarily, yeah, I think people get a bit confused about the idea of open data, but yeah, it's it's important for progress. Yeah, and there's there's certain thing about, you know, personal data, which is a different thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there are data models out there and ways of managing data that allow for that, and maybe we'll cover that in, in another um, section. I just wanted to pick up on <clears throat> one thing that Cisco's estimated the smart cities, obviously they've got an inbuilt um, <laughs> need, but anyway, um, smart cities can uh, create an impressive increase in efficiency. Um, they're talking about improvement of energy efficiency of 30% in the next 20 years. So still big percentages, but over a, a, a long time frame, because we don't mm. have this capability today. It doesn't live within cities. Um, and uh, there's also in that broader market that I talked about, once you have that open data, that market itself is worth three trillion by 2025. Mm. So if it's a whole new industry can be potentially created off the back of this kind of data, if we start um, considering it in the way it can be. And I think those countries that do invest in these types of things and take them, you know, there's a whole whole new market that doesn't exist today that can grow to lots of money. So, um, yeah, there's multiple reasons for it, but the best one is hopefully it'll improve our lives. 
Yeah, I think best one for us is it'll improve our lives, and the best incentive is, yeah, new jobs, new finance opportunities. There is a reason for people and companies to get involved in this. Yeah, yeah. All right, fantastic. Well, I think that about does it for another episode of the Atlas Podcast. Thank you for joining me. That's right, Alex. I have a quote. I was going to wonder that. I thought you were going to leave me hanging on Never. whether you had Never. a quote or not. But anyway, there you go. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. Just echoes some of our thoughts. I'm going back to the beginning of the episode here, but it's Bill Gates saying, nuclear energy, in terms of an overall safety record, is better than any other energy. That's straight into the point. There you go. Straight into the point. <clears throat> and I think statistically, it is basically... There's some good videos. Maybe I'll link them in the, the episode description that wrap it all up with a bow. Okay, perfect. All right, see you next week. Cheers. Bye. If you have any thoughts on the Atlas podcast, please don't forget to leave us a review. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at weareatlas.com. Follow us on Twitter at ATS underscore Atlas, and you can like our LinkedIn page found in the episode description. If you want to know more about Atlas products, services, and projects, head over to our website, weareatlas.com, to find out.